Good morning, Good Shepherd. Uh, I want to thank all of you for how you have been so quick to adjust, to uh, change, to uh, the ways that we're um, trying to rethink how we uh, do church uh, this morning. Before we actually jump into the passage, what I want to do is take a few minutes to think about our current situation, uh, just really to, to, to think about a dominant metaphor in, um, in the Bible. It's the metaphor of how we are pilgrims, that we are sojourners. Um, Psalm 23, Psalm 84, there are numerous psalms actually that speak to this idea of how we are, we are those just traveling through this world. We are those who are passing through this veil of tears. And when we think of our life like that, when we realize that the world is not our home, it's actually something very comforting. It's not only comforting, but it's clarifying in terms of our priorities. It's comforting because there's a lot less fear. There's a lot less sense of this is it, and I need to hold on to all that I've got because this is it. This is my home. But when we realize we are sojourners, that we are on the way to a place, to a, a future that uh, is secure, uh, to a place that, uh, where there will be no more uh, tears or crying or pain or death, when we know that, when we realize that we are on the journey, we don't have to hold things so tightly. We know that there is a coming protection. We know that there's a coming provision. There's a coming place. And so it really calls us to a life uh, without fear of comfort, but also a clarity, a clarity that basically says, this is what's important. This is the need of the hour. And that's exactly what, what's so beautiful about this, this, the, this, this, um, this analogy, if you will, of, of being a pilgrim or a sojourner. So as we think about the time that we're in right now, with all of its uncertainty, I think it will help us if we rise every morning and say, I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. I'm just passing through this veil of tears. And I, I, really, I really don't want to stay that long. I'm not really here to hold on to all that I can. So that's one, one uh, thought as we think about the time that we're living in right now. The second thought I want to share is just, um, it's... it's a radical, somewhat of a radical statement, and somewhat perhaps a little too simplistic and a bit, um, bit of too much flair. But for Christians, when a building is on fire, Christians are not those who run out. Christians are those who run in. Does that make sense? In, words, in times of crisis, Christians are not there to protect and preserve themselves. They are there precisely to protect and preserve others. And so think about this time as a time in which we are pilgrims, and we are also persons who are willing to take a risk. And I just want to emphasize, I want to say this very clearly, that there is so much blessing. There is so much freedom. There is so much life waiting for you and for me in the midst of this crisis as we follow Jesus. I, I truly believe that. Again, I've mentioned last week and I'll probably several times refer to the ways in which I, uh, which my wife Sarah and I, my family and I were in Puerto Rico in the months after the Hurricane uh, Maria that was there. And in the midst of the toil, in the midst of the hardship, not that it was incredibly overwhelming and brutal at times, but in the midst of that brutality, we saw amazing beauty. So I just want to encourage you, as we follow Jesus, as we surrender ourselves to him through this whole thing, there will be blessing, there will be unprecedented freedom, there will be unexpected joys in this uncertain time. So with that, I want to turn to uh, an article that was written in the Chicago Tribune. 
It was, I think it came out several days ago. It was an opinion piece by a guy named John Cass. And it's called, What We'll Learn About, What We Will Learn About Ourselves and Our Nation During the Coronavirus Pandemic. Let me say that again. It's, the title is, What We'll Learn About Ourselves and Our Nation During the Coronavirus Pandemic. And toward the end of the article, he writes this. The great sadness is that churches, temples, and, and mosques close just as people need them the most. Isn't that, isn't that interesting that he would write that? The great sadness is that churches, temples, and mosques will close just as people need them the most. And then he goes on to say, but you don't need a church to pray. Perhaps the best prayer of all is the simplest prayer I know, uttered by that lowly tax collector, his head bowed, kneeling, whispering, Kyrie eleison, have mercy, or have mercy upon me, O Lord, a sinner. So again, let me say that. He says, the great sadness is that churches, temples, and mosques will close just as people need them the most. And I think that's absolutely true. And let me make it clear, brothers and sisters, your leadership wants to make one thing clear. The Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church is not closed for business. And our every prayer is that this will be our finest hour as we unite in prayer as we unite in acts of love and sacrifice, especially for the weak, not, but not just the weak, for the wayward. And during this time, we're going to see people act in ways that are really unfortunate, where our temptation will be to maybe serve the frail, but not the foolish. And that is actually the, not the way of Christianity. The way, the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, is to serve and to give and to sacrifice, not only for the wayward, but also not only for the weak, but also for the wayward, not only for the frail, but also for the foolish. So again, Good Shepherd is, um, we are open for business more than ever, and we want to lead you, we want to serve you in this time as we rethink how to love one another, how to love our world in a time like this. So this morning, we're going to be continuing our journey through James. And why would we do that, especially in this crisis? Why would we keep going? Well, there are two reasons. First, your leaders met this past Tuesday, and unanimously they said, keep going in James. Why? Why is that for the second reason? Because James is such, James is so good, and the Word of God is the priority. It's our priority. So again, we, we keep going through this passage because this is what our leaders have wisely said. And uh, I think, it was, as, we, as we've already seen, James is going to, it's proven relevant. It's proved relevant this past Monday, and our text again this coming this, this, this morning will also show just how relevant it is. So, um, in fact, this, the text that we're about to look at, this is James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The text this morning actually has a good measure of continuity with the previous text. And we see that in two different ways. We see that the last week and this week have the same introduction. You look in verse, chapter 4, verse 13, and then in, ch in chapter 5, verse 1, they're the same four words. In the NIV, it says, now listen, you who, right? In 4.13, it's now listen, you who say such and such. And then in 5.1, now listen, you who are rich. So there's the same, under, there's the same intro. And on top of that, there's the same underlying issues, issues of wealth and pride. But here's the difference. Whereas in, whereas in the last week, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, that passage emphasized what's questionable about the future. James was quick to say, look, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
What is your life? In other words, the passage emphasized what was questionable about our future. But the passage this morning emphasizes what's coming about our future. It's what we do know about the future and to live and to think about wealth in light of what's certain about the future. So I've summarized James's teaching here with the following words. Weeping and waiting because of what's coming. He calls for weeping and waiting because of what's coming. So with that, let's hear the the life-giving word of God taken from James chapter 5. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent who was not opposing you. The innocent one who was not opposing you. And then he says, after, after speaking of weeping because of what's coming, he speaks of, to those who are weak and says, wait because of what's coming. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, several days ago, the New York Post published an article. It was, called the, it was called Coronavirus Leads to Class Warfare in the Hamptons. And it begins this way. The article says, it's all-out class warfare in the Hamptons. The year-round residents, the, the locals who serve and clean and landscape for the super-rich in the summertime and who put up with all manner of entitlement and Terrible, terrible behavior in exchange for good money, they are silent no more. One working-class resident of East Hampton said, there's not a single vegetable to be found in town right now. It's these elitist people who think they don't have to follow the rules. And it's not just, the, the article continues, it's not just the drastic food shortage out here. Every aspect of life, most crucially medical care, is under strain. Why? 
because of the sudden influx of rich Manhattanites panic-fleeing New York, bringing along their disdain and their disregard for the little people, and in some cases, knowingly bringing the coronavirus. In fact, the article goes on to mention a local nurse reported that a wealthy Manhattan woman who tested positive for the coronavirus called the tiny South Southampton Hospital to say that she was on her way and needed treatment. The woman was told by the hospital to stay in Manhattan. Instead, she got on, on public transportation telling no one of her condition. And then she showed up at, Southampton, Southampton, at the Southampton Hospital demanding admittance. Because here's something, and the article goes on to say, that here's something that never gets mentioned or seen in coverage of the Hamptons, whether it's the news or gossip columns or the Sex and the City reruns, that there are actually poor people who live there. Think about that. They never get mentioned, totally overlooked. Said one lifelong East Hamptonite, Jason Legreen, he said, I've seen breathtaking acts of selfishness in the last week. And the, article, the article continues, this is the kind of place where a wealthy homeowner rents out his house in the summer and tells his cleaning staff at the end of the season, just throw out all the perfectly good sealed unopened food and beverages in all three of the refrigerators. Okay. One, one resident said, it's horrible. Think of all the older people who have to wait for their social security checks for food stamps. Then they get the courage to go and there's nothing to buy in the store because it's all been taken. Every person, out here doesn't, every person out here doesn't have the luxury of laying down their, their debit card whenever they choose. I saw old people at, at a, at a certain, uh, at a certain um, grocery store shell-shocked with empty baskets. He continues, these poor people, they're literally risking their lives to go to the grocery store, and you go home with what? Nothing. And the article concludes by saying, after all the rich panic fleers bought all the available food, they did not hunker down to go home. Instead, they went out to party. So, um, and the article concludes with a quote. He says, I see the bartenders and the waitresses, the people out of work, volunteering to feed the elderly. We don't really see that from the types of people hoarding supplies. But I guess that's to be expected. What a picture, right? What a picture. And, and again, probably a, a somewhat distinct, sort of a unique, somewhat in the sense that Hampton, this is the, the ultra-rich, and perhaps we can say, yeah, that's, that's, not just, that's just to be expected. But our text this morning begins with a command to the wealthy to weep. Look at the first half of verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail. Why? Why does he say to do that? Well, he tells us in the second half of the verse. The rich are to weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. That is to say, the wealthy are to weep and to wail because of what's coming, namely misery, or miseries, actually plural, miseries, or wretchedness. But why? Why is this coming on them? Well, the wealthy are to weep because of what's coming, because of how they've used their wealth. James says weep because of two things that they've done with their wealth. The first is that the wealth has been wasted. Their wealth was wasted. Look at verses 2 and 3. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you as you, uh, uh, and eat your flesh like fire. 
you have hoarded wealth in the last days. In other words, he's saying, look, you have wasted your wealth. You've wasted it. It's, it's simply, it's rotted. The moths have eaten your clothes. In other words, these clo- the, the clothes haven't been used. There's been, the, the wealth hasn't been in, in, put to good use. It's simply been wasted. And the second thing he says, he says, is that their wealth has been withheld. So why, will, why are they called to weep? Why, why is what's coming on them uh, so terrible? First, because their wealth has been wasted. But second, because their wealth has been withheld. Look at verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And of course, the million-dollar million question here is why? Why did these particular wealthy persons use their wealth in this way? Or why did they waste and withhold their wealth? Why would they do something like that? The answer, I think, is really important. People, this and this, we all do this. People mistake wealth for worth. The more wealth that I have, the more I'm worth. And you see, I mean, we saw it in the New York Post article that I just read. Quote, we, the article spoke of, quote, the sudden influx of rich Manhattanites panic fleeing, bringing along their disdain and disregard for the little people. You see that? The little people. In fact, um, in my, my home right now, I'm reading a book to my, my twin daughters, um, Lydia and Rosemary, and we're, we're reading about, um, it's a book called Ethnic America, written by an Afro-American uh, economist named Thomas Sowell. And the book tells about how the immigrants, immigrant wages, when, when immigrants would come to America, their wages were often less than, than the regular American. Uh, and why were they less? Because supposedly, somehow, wrongly, these immigrants were worth less. In fact, in the Jim Crow South, African Amer- Afro-American wages were often less for the same job. Why? Because so it was thought wrongly, unjustly, that these Afro-Americans were worth less. Did you, see, did you hear what I'm saying? Our wealth, um, that, that for, for so many who are wealthy, the more wealth they have, the more worth they think they have. They think they're exceptional, they're superior. But the Bible is saying, James is emphasizing here, that our wealth has absolutely nothing to do with our worth. So again, to review here, why should the wealthy weep? Because of how they've wasted and how they've withheld their wealth. And because they've wasted it and withheld it, what's coming is wrath. Look at verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day or for the day of slaughter. And what a picture. James is picturing the wealthy as like cattle who simply are out there grazing, fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. But not only have they wasted it and withheld their wealth, they, they also have warped justice. Look at verse 6. He says, you, he's talking to the wicked, the wealthy wicked. He says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So these wealthy persons, they see the criminal justice system as a weapon. They're above the law. In fact, they are the law. But just, but just what is coming for these wealthy persons? Right? I mean, seriously. Will they really get what's coming? Is there really a wrath to come? for persons who withhold and who waste their wealth. 
Well, Jesus thought so. He did. In fact, he was certain that there was a wrath to come. No one talked about hell and future punishment more than Jesus of Nazareth. No one else, no other figure in the Bible talks more about, about a future wrath. If you would, look back at verse 4. James writes, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. This description of God as the Lord Almighty, quite well, it's not certain, but it's probable that it refers to God as one who is sovereign in all of, all of his judgments. One who, stand, in other words, the analogy is sort of seeing God as this ancient Near Eastern monarch or a king or an emperor who has all of these servants. In fact, literally it's translated Lord of hosts. Hosts being, again, not, 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 not certain, but probable. The host here has this idea of a legion of servants. And these servants are able to go out into his empire and they, and they see everything and they're able to, to manipulate everything and to, so, that the, so that the king always gets his way. They see all wrongdoing and they will punish all wrongdoing. So the idea is that God sees, that God sees the injustice of the wealthy, and he, he sees all and will remember all and will call all to account. Jesus himself was certain of a future wrath. Was he wrong? That's the gamble we've got to take. And, 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 let, me, and, and let me just and to clarify here, that these six verses, the point, the point here most likely is that, most likely it's not the wealthy themselves who are listening to James. It's those in, in God among God's people who are oppressed, who are, they're the persons who aren't getting wages, they're the persons who are afflicted, and they're overhearing a God, in a sense, through James, speak to those who are oppressing them and comforting them. And that's the point. This is what I want you to hear this morning. The point of God's wrath is to comfort us in our affliction and to give us compassion upon our enemies. When we hear about God's wrath upon the, on the wealthy and how they waste and withhold their wealth, we're to be driven to a compassion, a prayer, a willingness to pray for those who persecute us and who wrong us. So the, the point being here, that James, that, that James is, um, is, is speaking of God's wrath to comfort us in our affliction and to give, and to give us compassion for our enemies. So let me ask a few questions by way of application. Especially in this time that we're in right now, how are we going to use our wealth? How are we going to do it? Will we waste it? Will we waste the wealth that we have? Which is sort of, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want to right now with my wealth. Will we withhold our wealth? Will we withhold our wealth from our neighbor? Will we withhold our wealth from our enemy? You know, right now, during this time, in this time of crisis, there may be family relations or friendships that are strained. There may be co you know, co-worker situations or people that you don't like, and, and they may make foolish decisions. And the temptation will be, not, will be to withhold what, what we have from them. To, to, will be to withhold the wealth that God has given us. And in here, James is actually calling us to do the opposite. Will we withhold our wealth from our neighbor? Will we withhold our wealth from our enemy? And most of all, perhaps, will we withhold our wealth from God? During this time, we say, you know, I don't, have, I don't have money to give to God right now. I can't give to his church. I can't give to his ministries. I can't do that. Will we, will we waste our wealth? Will we withhold our wealth? And then we should all go ask this. 
Am I worth more than anyone else? Am I worth more than anyone else? See, if I'm only going to use my wealth for myself, I'm communicating to others that I am more important than they are. But the Bible insists that the net worth of every person is exactly the same. Your neighbors, your, your foolish neighbors, your unwise neighbors, unwise family, they are worth in the sight of the Lord. Yes, they may be more unworthy by God's grace, but their worth is the same. So will I waste the wealth that God has given me? Will I withhold the wealth that God has given me? Am I, am I worth more than anyone else? And finally, will I, will I in fact warp the criminal justice system? Will I see myself as an exception, as above the law? During this time, we're getting a lot of, a lot of, um, of, of guidelines, a lot of, um, of, of commands from our governing authorities. And the temptation will be to think that we know better. Will we be so, or, or will we actually be an example as a citizen to follow the guidelines that our public health officials and leaders have given us? In fact, will we be so bold as to urge others to do the same? There'll be temptations. You see neighbors who people who are not following these guidelines. And it's a Christian responsibility for us to say, stop, whoa, what are you doing? To do it humbly, but to do it boldly. And to call others to follow along so that we can all manage, manage, make our way through this crisis. The bottom line is the question, what's my wealth for? What's my wealth for? And that's a question, I think, that in this time that we are called to consider in the light of who Jesus is. So James tells the wealthy to weep because of what's coming. But he also tells the weak to wait because of what's coming. Look at verses, look at verses 7 and following. James says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have, those who have persevered, you have heard of Job's patience and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, I just want to notice a few things. James here calls us who are weak to wait. And, and, and notice, notice first the, the agricultural metaphor in verse 7. Do you see that in verse 7? It says, be patient and it says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield his crop, to yield his valuable crop waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You know, the agricultural metaphor is really good because often when you stare at something that's growing, what does it feel like? You can sit there and watch a plant grow. And what do you think? What does it feel like? Like nothing is happening. <laughs> there's this sense that this is just, it's, just, it's going to be forever. It's never going to happen. And yet week by week by week, you, uh, you come back and you see actually something really is happening. See, when waiting for the weather to change, how does it feel? We're while waiting for spring, it's cold, and we think that what it feels like is that nothing is happening. This agricultural and, and uh, meteorological metaphor here, they, they, they actually challenge how our feelings can be really deceptive. 
We can think this is not growing or the spring's never going to come. It feels that way. And yet the truth is we know that these things are inevitable. It's going to grow. Spring is coming. So he uses these agricultural metaphors that are very powerful to challenge our immediate feelings of God's never going to act. God's never going to do anything. When all around us we live in a world that is predictable in terms of its, its, its changing of the seasons. So first, notice the agricultural metaphor in verse 7. Second, notice the temptation to grumble in verse, in verse 9. Do you see that there? He says, don't grumble against one another. It's, and I think that's very important. In, in the midst of hardship, so let me say it this way, hardship brings out the worst in us. And in the coming weeks, you may see that. Your, your, your relationships, your marriage and family, as you're all home together at the same time, there's going to be a temptation in the midst of hardship to grumble. And it may bring out the worst in us. And James knows that. And so we call, he urges us, don't grumble against one another or you will be judged. Very strong words. So first, notice the agricultural metaphor in verse 7. Then the, then the temptation to grumble in verse 9 <coughs> Excuse me, and then notice the example of the prophets in verse 10. He speaks about how he says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And, and, and so this, this is a very simple idea of, in the midst of hardship, am I like the prophets? Am I on God's side? Am I truly one of the people of God? Am I there willing to be in the minority, willing to be opposed, willing to be on God's side? And finally, notice the example of Job in verse 11. You know, what's amazing about the story of Job is Job's perseverance, but it's the mystery of Job's suffering. You know, in the midst of all this crisis, as we go endure hardship and suffering, we may be saying, why? Like, well, what's going on? And see, Job never really knew why. He didn't, he didn't realize that there was an audience. He didn't realize that there were all kinds of things going on behind the scenes. He didn't realize that he had been caught up in the plans and purposes of God in a way that he couldn't begin to grasp. So notice the example of Job and the mystery that so often entails our suffering. But what's amazing about Job, and this is what I want to conclude with, is that Job at the end, what the Lord finally brought about, so to speak, as James writes, is an encounter with God. That in the midst of suffering, in the midst of our hardship, it is not about simply an explanation, it is about an encounter. An encounter with God. And that's exactly what Job, Job never, get, never really gets an explanation. God never really sort of uh, unveils the curtain and shows him what's going on, but he does encounter God. And it's my heart, the very last words in verse 11, James says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And I believe, as I said, uh, as we first began, I truly believe that we will experience God's compassion and mercy in the midst of this crisis. So again, look at the, think of the character of God, and let me ask you, do we believe this virus is actually an act of God's mercy, an expression of his compassion to awaken us, to sober us, to call us to a greater freedom, to a true blessing, to the life that truly is life, Will we believe that this, this whole situation 
isn't about me. It's about him. It's about his plans. It's about his purposes for our country, for our community, and for our world. So the wealthy are to weep, and the weak are to wait. Gotta wait. Why? Because of what's coming. But there's one more thing that James wants to say, and it's, and it's the most important. Look at verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven above, or heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need is to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. See, the weak are not only to wait for what's coming, the weak are to watch their words. They're to watch their words. Here, during this particular crisis, we can all say, you know what, all my former commitments, they're all for grabs. All bets are off. All that I've committed to, it's, you know, it no longer applies because of this crisis. Or, or we can remain true. I let our yes be yes and our no be no, holding the commitments, holding the oaths that we have taken. We can remain, we can, excuse me, we can remain true to Christ and true to his community and true to our own calling. So let me conclude with that. What's he calling you to do during this time? Will we keep our word of commitment to Christ and to his community? Will we keep our word of commitment to one another? And according to James, all you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned let me conclude with the cross. It's at the cross we see what's coming. It's at the cross that we see a, pre- a preview of the day of the Lord. It's at the cross that we see both wrath, a future wrath and a future mercy come together. It is at the cross that we see Jesus uh, as the one who exhausts the flames of God's wrath and frees us, all who repent, all who surrender, all who know the ways that they are tempted to use their wealth for themselves, to use their wealth to see themselves as worth more. It's at the cross that we see one who was, who was rich for our sakes become poor, that we who were, who, were, who were poor might become rich. This is the cross, this is the center of Christianity, and it is our hope. Will we wait Will we wait? Will we use our wealth in ways that are life-giving for others? Will we, will we wait as those who are weak for the Lord to act in his timing and in his ways? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you such uh, praise. We worship you this morning for the relevance of your word. Father, how tempted we are to use our wealth in this time in ways that are so selfish, where we waste it, We withhold it from others. Lord God, you have given us so very much. We are the wealthiest Christians who ever lived in all of church history. So Father, we ask that you indeed would would enable us, free us from our wealth, free us to use ourselves in this time in a way that is pleasing to you. May we answer the call even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.